0: Ooh. Welcome to Irish Passport uh, Let's do it Welcome to the Irish Passport
1: I'm Tim McInerney
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary
1: We're friends Can okay, welcome, to Naomi?
0: Ano Fat Tim This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics uh-huh. I'm recording
1: One, One two, two, three, three. Okay
0: Welcome back, listeners. It's a special Australia themed episode of the Irish Passport Podcast. (laughs) Ireland and Australia, of course, even though they're on opposite sides of the world, have a long and illustrious history together going back centuries. And we want to give a special thanks here to listener Claire Murphy, who kindly sponsored this episode and has been patiently waiting until we got round to it. Thanks so much, Claire.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Claire. And by the way, you guys, if you're interested in more about Ireland and Australia, you can check out Claire Murphy's own podcast. It's called The Celtic Club Melbourne, where she explores issues to do with the Irish community in Melbourne. Uh, you can find that on iTunes and SoundCloud. So, Naomi, what are we going to talk about in this episode?
0: Well, we'll be looking at some of the fascinating historical links between Ireland and Australia. We'll hear from Professor Diane Hall, who tells us this.
2: Some language scholars have actually um, picked up or, or have theorised that some words um, of Irish did sort of enter the Indigenous languages.
1: We'll also be looking at some of the major events that have recently changed the game for Irish immigrants and locals alike in Australia.
3: Um. Sunday we were told that no, there's no farm work, no backpackers would be allowed and then they were closing the border to Queensland.
0: And we'll talk to Anna and Loretta, representing two generations of Irish Australians, about what it was like growing up
4: with this cultural legacy and what it means to them. Once you meet these people that you've never met your whole life, you, you feel this bond. You have this underlying current
1: of Irishness. We'll also find out why this sound played a quintessential part in so many Irish people's childhoods. Now, Naomi, practically everyone in Ireland knows someone who has lived in Australia at some point, or more often than not, someone who lives there right now.
0: Right, Australia is a huge destination for Irish people, and there's a very long history behind that. In fact, as we'll hear soon, by the end of the 19th century, about 25% of the settler population in Australia were Irish-born. In relative terms, that made Australia considerably more Irish than even the USA. And that trend has never let up since. Even in the years before the financial crash of 2008, there were about a 1,000 people per year emigrating permanently from Ireland to Australia, which is a really significant number in Irish terms.
1: Countless more people, of course, have taken advantage of the work holiday visa scheme between Ireland and Australia, which gives Irish people the opportunity to work in Australia for up to 12 months. And lots of people who do that end up settling down in Australia for good.
0: When the financial crash did hit in 2008, the number of people leaving Ireland for Australia and other destinations rose dramatically. I think in our generation, Tim, it's quite normal to have significant numbers of friends and family who have relocated to Australia. Shout out to my cousins, Colm and Neve, and their families in Sydney.
1: Shout out, Colm and Niamh. Uh Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can also think of several off the bat. And every month or two, uh, you tend to hear about someone else who has just given up trying to get a job or a house at home and heads off on an airplane to try their luck down under. And it's easy to see why Australia would be such a popular choice. Um, it's it's English-speaking, it offers loads of opportunities in a, in a whole range of employment areas. The weather, of course, is beautiful, the landscape is amazing, and year upon year, its cities have been voted amongst the most livable in the world.
0: In all, an estimated 2 million people, or about 10% of the population in Australia today, claim some Irish ancestry, though some sources suggest that the real figures could be something up to three times 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 that number. But Tim, we got to start with you on this one because you were one of those Irish people who took a working holiday visa in Australia, weren't you?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, I was. Um, When I was uh, about 19, I think I set off with my friend Emma. Hi, Emma, if you're listening. And we travelled all around uh, the Australian continent for about a year, which was just great.
0: I'd say loads of our listeners may well have had the same experience Um, because it was such a popular thing to do and still is. So, Tim, for you, Mm. what was this experience like?
1: Oh, well, of course, I had an amazing time. You know, I'm so glad I did it. And looking back on it now... Um, older and wiser. Uh, It's one of those things where I probably didn't realise what a privilege it was to be able to do something like that with such freedom, Um, especially uh, looking out from our isolation pods here during the the lockdown. Um, You know, it really is an amazing opportunity to be allowed to work and live and travel on the other side of the world. And it's one of those things that actually for most of history would have been, you know, very difficult to do. So maybe we take it a bit for granted these days.
0: So tell us a bit like what it was like. Were you kind of backpacking around or what were you doing?
1: Yeah, more. Or less, that's uh, I think what most people do. Uh, we managed to travel around the entire coast. Uh, we, we were mostly hitching lifts off cars that came by, uh, which is what loads of people do too, and that's you know, that's. It, Uh, scary at times, obviously, but also loads of fun because, uh, you know, you don't really know where you're going. um, You don't really know where you're going to end up at the end of each day or who you're going to be traveling with. uh, So it's really exciting.
0: Did you ever meet like one really, really strange person who gave you a lift? (laughs) The one that's Oh,
1: Multiple. (laughs) Oh, yeah, loads, obviously, you know, loads of oddballs, uh, but loads of really great people too. Um, You know, Australia is a magnet for travelers from all around the world. So uh, along with Australians, you'd always be meeting Germans or, or French people or people from... From Japan or South America or or anywhere. So it was this really big cultural mix that was changing all the time. Um, lots of people who travel in Australia stay in this huge network of hostels uh, that in Australia are called backpackers. Um, but we couldn't really afford that most of the time. I mean, they're not that expensive. It's about, you know, maybe 15 euros, but... That shows you where we were financially. Um, so instead, we had this tiny little tent that we lugged around with us and uh, we slept in that most nights, uh, which was actually really cool because, you know, you were just constantly surrounded by nature. Um, and as everyone knows, you know, the wildlife and the scenery in Australia is like another planet. You know, it's totally mind blowing.
0: Do you know what's blowing my m- my mind, Tim? is the idea of you living like out in the rough in a tent. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just can't imagine you doing yeah. this without a shower or anything.
1: Well, I mean, there was normally a campsite somewhere or somewhere that you could kind of clean up, clean up a bit. Um, but no, I actually, you know, like you get used to it and like it's, it's very free and, lo- uh, you know, you can just do whatever you want. So it's, it's actually quite a nice way to, a nice way to live.
0: So how, what did you do for the work part of it?
1: Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I did a few different things, actually. Uh, I worked mostly on farms, um, apple farms. Uh, I was picking Pink Lady Apples and that was in the very, very southwest of Australia. It was in a tiny town called Donnybrook, actually.
0: That's so funny. That's <laughs> what, I mean, given the theme of our podcast, so um, listeners, most of you must know uh, Donnybrook is a neighborhood in South Dublin mm. um, and it's where the headquarters of Ireland's national broadcaster RTE is. So I presume that's where the town got its name from. <laughs>
1: Yes, it is. I looked this up and from what I can find out, it was settled in 1842 by people who had come directly from Donnybrook in Dublin. And for a while there, it was the centre of a gold rush, uh, which is unlike uh, Donnybrook in Dublin, uh, but sounds very exciting altogether. Um, These days, it's at the centre of Australia's apple farming industry, hence my job picking apples. So I'd spend all day there in lovely Lush orchards, you know, uh, mostly picking just hundreds and thousands of apples all day. But, Naomi, these, I mean, I say apples, uh, but these are apples that you've never seen the like of before. You know, I've (laughs) never seen an apple like this in Europe. They were huge. Like, you know, they were about the size of a grapefruit. But maybe maybe my memory is exaggerating things. But they were really, really big. And, you know, bright red and beautiful crystal white uh, flesh on the inside, Um, you know, and you're eating them directly off the tree. So they were like nectar of the gods. Um, (laughs) So I've come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, the Aussies must only let us have their second grade stock of fruit and veg and they keep the good stuff for themselves.
0: Um, It sounds very idyllic, but Mm. um, I'm sure anyone who's done any farm work will know that it's back-breaking work. Mm. <laughs> um, so depending on what crop you're harvesting, you might be bent over all day or you might be sticking your hands into thorns. Um, but with apples, I suppose you'd be reaching and reaching out for hours uh, with your hands above your head.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you think about like the last time you did a, um, I don't know, a, a 30-minute aerobics exercise, you can get the idea of what nine hours of that is like. Um, yeah, and it's, it's incredibly hard work, um, farm work in general, which I suppose is why workers are always needed uh, in that sector. So even though your arms are, you know, aching from hours of reaching up and up uh, for the apples, you also have to treat each apple really, really carefully because they can't be sold if they're bruised. Uh, And you're only paid for the ones that survive in like a perfect state. So you have to treat each one like a baby. Um, And of course, Naomi, it wouldn't be Australia without a whole host of deadly animals. Out to kill you, so um, oh, every now and again you'd come across a deadly snake or a red-backed spider. I mean, more often ah. than you would more often than you would think. And, um, but that's you know just how life goes for people there, and you know they're pretty used to it.
0: That is scary. Um, But I know that's also one of the reasons why people like Australia as well, because the wildlife is very cool.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, The friend I was traveling with um, worked for ages, actually, on a whale watching boat. Uh, She would help uh, bring tourists out there uh, on the boat um, on these long trips and she'd take them snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef and swimming oh with turtles God. and oh it was yeah it was really really cool and um even though i as you know naomi am completely useless on boats um i i sometimes came out to help which was which was really loads of fun so would you know would be serving the food and things like that that's what would be working out that's what i'd be doing and we'd spend all day you know um on those boats watching these enormous creatures whales just launching themselves out of the water which is just something i'll never forget
0: so You travelled a long way going along the whole coast. What what bits of Australia kind of stood out to you?
1: I think the main thing that strikes most people is just how immense the Australian continent is. Like there's just so much space, um, even in the cities. Uh, Western Australia in particular, you know, like is really like this. It's this huge territory. It's about the size of uh, Western Europe. You know, you can just drive for days and days um, without seeing anything other than a kangaroo. Um, And halfway up the Western coast, um, there is a coral reef. I don't remember what it's called. I think it's an Ingaloo. Um, But it's entirely untouched. You know, it's it's just so remote from anything else. And it's, of course, also shark infested. Um, (laughs) But it was worth taking the risk uh, because the coral reef out there was so perfect. Um, And it was like, I mean... Finding Nemo wouldn't even do it justice. It was absolutely beautiful.
0: Amazing. Jim, you mentioned how big Australia is. And of course, that means that it has like a whole load of different kinds of climates and terrains. So in the north, there's like tropical rainforests, And in the south, there's Mediterranean climates and big sort of eucalyptus mountain ranges. And then the centre is dominated by a big desert. And the population of Australia in that landmass is about 25 million people. And its total area is a huge seven and a half million square kilometres, which is about 90 times bigger than the island of Ireland.
1: Right. Okay. So the modern state of Australia began as a series of colonies, which were transformed into an independent dominion of the British Empire in 1901. That's more or less the same status that the Irish Free State had until it became a republic in 1949. Um, Those historical links with Britain were gradually, you know, worn away in Australia over the course of the 20th century. Uh, But still today, it remains part of the Commonwealth, with Britain's Queen Elizabeth as its head of state.
0: Of course, Australia is also home to one of the oldest civilizations on the planet, the indigenous or Aboriginal peoples who are thought to have lived there for at least 65,000 years. Today, however, Aboriginal Australians only count for an estimated 3.3% of the whole population. And that is largely because they were displaced and sometimes massacred by incoming Europeans from the 18th century onward. Europeans that, of course, included the Irish.
1: Right. And like so many sites of European colonisation, the legacies of those displacements and deaths uh, still, still hangs like a, a really dark shadow uh, in Australia. Uh, These people have been subject to tragedy after tragedy since the arrival of Europeans. The most deadly impact of colonization, uh, just like in other New World territories, was imported diseases like measles and smallpox, and those diseases wiped out untold numbers of people. Uh, One single smallpox outbreak in 1789 is thought to have killed 90% of the Darug people who lived in the area around what we now call Sydney. Jesus.
0: Jesus. Um, So over the course of the 19th century, Aboriginal peoples were forced into hard labour, and they were essentially hunted down by police, militia groups and soldiers. And then right into the 1960s, countless children were forcibly taken from their families by the state or church missions, and the victims of those schemes are known as Stolen Generations. An inquiry report from 1997 suggests that perhaps somewhere between 10 and 33% of all Aboriginal children were taken from their families between 1871 and 1969. Amazingly, Indigenous Australians were only counted in the official census from 1967, and that had to be decided by a referendum. Until 1971, they still had to apply for citizenship, and which was conditional and could be revoked at any time this is shocking.
1: Yeah, it's a really, really uh, awful history. And efforts to rectify the inequalities suffered by Indigenous communities only really began to gather steam in the 1960s and 70s. And it's still an ongoing process. Um, when I arrived in Australia back in, I suppose it must have been about 2003, I suppose, um, I lived uh, for a month or two in, in the Sydney suburb of Redfern, uh, which had just seen some serious rioting from the Aboriginal community there. Um, those riots actually, um, in retrospect, they had echoes of the racial tensions that we've seen since in the USA in recent years. Um, Local police had been accused of knocking down a young Aboriginal man on his bicycle, uh, which the police denied. And then that dispute descended into full-on street violence between the police and locals in the area.
0: As we mentioned, Irish people had a fundamental role to play in this very dark chapter of Australian history. Generally in Ireland, we're used to seeing ourselves as the victims of colonisation, which of course many in Ireland were for a very long time. But that history back home in Ireland also provides an easy way to escape culpability when it comes to how Irish people colonised other lands.
1: Yeah, for sure. And Australia is a really good example of that. Uh, Like you said, Naomi, by the 19th century, about 25% of the settler population was Irish-born. So there's just no getting around the fact that Irish immigrants and their descendants were significantly involved in the massacre of native populations there.
0: Irish President Michael D. Higgins made a landmark speech in 2017 to the Parliament of Western Australia, in which he acknowledged that Irish emigrants to Australia inflicted injustices on Aboriginal people. Let's hear a bit of that
5: speech. In making this visit as President of Ireland, I am minded of all those earlier visits by others, including my own ancestors. My grandfather's siblings came to Australia in 1862. They did not come to a terra nullius. And may I begin here today by acknowledging the first occupants of this land, who for tens of thousands of years negotiated with its possibilities and its challenges and developed one of the oldest cultures in the world, one that valued symmetry with nature, ancient wisdom and practical balances. I honour their elders present and past. Mr Speaker, President of the Council, since the arrival of the First Fleet 230 years ago, Irish people have traversed the vast seas to this continent. They have come or been brought, some as prisoners and some as servants of empire, and later as migrants fleeing hunger, poverty, oppression, frustration, and stagnation. If we are to be truly unblinking in our gaze, we must acknowledge that while most Irish immigrants experienced some measure, some a large measure, of prejudice and injustice, there were some among their number who inflicted injustice too. For example, when former Prime Minister Paul Keating memorably acknowledged responsibility for crimes against Aboriginal communities, his we not only included the most powerful it included all the elements of the society who had participated in or acquiesced in it had to include we must recognize some who were irish in australia too his were powerful words we took the children from their mothers we practiced discrimination and exclusion it was our our ignorance and our prejudice
0: There's a really interesting dynamic here because, of course, right through the 19th century and into the 20th century, Ireland was very consciously engaged in an anti-colonial struggle against British rule. And as we'll hear, many Irish in Australia had been forcibly sent there as punishment for sedition against colonial rule in Ireland.
1: So let's find out a bit more about who these Irish settlers were. I spoke to Diane Hall, who is Associate Professor at Victoria University in Melbourne and co-author of A New History of the Irish in Australia. I asked her first about that title, A New History. It's called
2: A New History because there have been histories of the Irish in Australia published before, most notably one about 30 years ago by brilliant historian Patrick O'Farrell. He perhaps controversially argued that the Irish were um, an essential character, sort of part of um, Australian identity um, that made it quite different to the uh, dominant English identity. Um, He was arguing this in the 1980s when the question of Australian identity was uh, very big amongst historians and amongst the general public. Since then, of course, there's been huge changes in the questions that we ask. Um, about history and the concerns of um, general society. So we've been much more interested in issues to do with gender, to do with race, to do with discrimination, and um, also to do with the way that the Irish interacted with other cultures that they found once they arrived in Australia.
0: The first Europeans to set foot on Australia were probably the Dutch when they arrived on the coast in 1606. Initially, they called it New Holland, And then, about 200 years after that, in 1770, the British explorer James Cook landed in what is now New South Wales and claimed it for Britain. This was a pretty important moment in the UK's imperial history. Around that time, Britain was losing its grip on the colonies of America, so the seizure of another huge landmark was really significant for them. Australia was used from the 1780s onwards as a place to send convicts who'd been previously shipped off to America. Long after those penal colonies were abolished, though, emigration to Australia continued in force, including loads of settlers from Ireland. So what would it have been like for the Irish arriving on this strange new continent in the mid-19th century? Diane explains.
2: Well, the rural numbers are quite low, particularly compared with the numbers of Irish who uh, went to the United States. That was mostly because the distance was very great and it was very expensive to come to Australia However, although the raw numbers are low, the percentage of Irish who um, came to Australia and settled in Australia is much higher. So the percentage of um, Irish and of Irish descent by about 1900 was 25, about 25% of the white um, population of Australia, which means that they were a very substantial minority within the developing Australian society. Sort of a profile would actually be young, uh, single, so between the ages of about 18 and 24, uh, just as likely to be a young single woman as a young single man who was coming out to Australia assisted. That means their passage was being paid by some sort of government scheme or. Uh, somebody that their family knew in Australia. Their occupation would be it for women, domestic servant, and for men, most typically, some sort of agricultural labourer. The main ports they would have arrived at would have been um, Melbourne or Sydney. Sydney had been in existence for about 80 years. It was um, a fairly, a little bit raw perhaps, but fairly bustling, um, a bustling port city. Melbourne was much, much, much rawer In the 1850s, it was this... Um, jumping off point for a major gold rush. So there was tent cities, there was huge numbers of people. Um, it was all a bit chaotic but very, very exciting from many of the reports that we read about Melbourne in the gold rush area. It was a population went from quite low to tripling or even more in size in only a very small amount of time with enormous amounts of wealth coming back from the um, from the gold fields. So big buildings went up quite quickly. The majority population was English or Scottish and Protestant in Australia, and that's how the um, settlement had been set up. It was with some reluctance in many ways that the um, Australian colonial governments accepted what they thought were too many Irish Catholic settlers. However, they needed or felt they needed um, many more white settlers to come, and the English and Scots just weren't coming in as many numbers as the Irish Catholics were, who were very um, keen to take advantage of these assistance schemes. So they did get more Irish Catholics than they had wanted to to come out. Once the Irish Catholics arrived out here, they did find that they were um, a minority in a Protestant society, which did cause some problems. They were um, often discriminated against on the basis both of their religion and also their Irishness, which was pretty much tied up um, together. Uh, However, the Catholic um, Church, once it had established itself fairly firmly, sort of mid and later 19th century, um, became a very good network for these settlers with with schools and churches and hospitals and things like that to support them. Uh, So they did establish themselves reasonably well by the beginning of the 20th century, even though discrimination based on their religion and to some extent their place of birth did continue.
1: Like you say, Naomi, this was a really odd dynamic. Uh, The Irish were settling land that had been taken violently from a native population, and we have to presume that those Irish immigrants were just as motivated to exploit that land and its original inhabitants as any other settler who might have been looking to make their fortune in the New World. Uh, At the same time though, the Irish were being seen as a different kind of immigrant to their English or Scottish counterparts. Uh, just like in America, Australia was seen by many as the chance to start a new and better society from scratch. And to a large degree, that was a peculiarly Protestant project, Lots of Protestants at the time would have seen New World communities in starkly religious terms. You know, for them, God had given them the opportunity to found a new, pure society, um, safe from the polluting influences of the Catholic Church. So initially anyway, the vast majority of the Irish, who were Catholic of course, uh, did not fit very well into that project. Uh, You know, there were similar misgivings in America at this very same time. Um, You know, people there didn't necessarily want their Protestant country overrun by Irish Catholics either. Uh, In the 19th century, of course, uh, there were also all these new pseudo-Darwinist theories that suggested that the Irish were a lesser race of human beings, And that all very conveniently tied in with uh, anti-Catholic sentiment.
0: Okay, so you have this localised inter-European race discourse, which asserts that Anglo-Saxon Protestants are higher beings than Irish Catholics, being supplanted into Australia. And at the same time, you have this larger race discourse where all of the white settlers, including the Irish, were oppressing the native population of indigenous Australians.
1: Yeah, it is a really interesting reminder of how manifestations of racism are so dependent on context. And you know, how they're so often incoherent with one another. You know, this still goes on today. What supposedly constitutes one race, you know, quote unquote, or another is is often completely different depending on which country you're in. And the hierarchies built around those so-called races are remarkably variable and they always have been. Uh, weirdly, within this settler colonial population in Australia, you know which was banding together essentially to oppress the indigenous peoples, uh, those old ideas of Irish Catholic ethnicity were also lingering on, and they did linger on well into the twentieth century.
2: You still hear people talking about um, the 50s, knowing where Catholics would, would be able to get jobs and where they wouldn't get jobs based on where they went to school and who their, what their names were and things like that. So there was a, a sort of a, um, a, a discrimination based on that, certainly a sense of difference between the Protestants and the Catholics going right through from the school systems. up Until after the Second World War, the vast majority of Catholics in Australia were either of Irish or of Irish descent.
0: One group that will spring to mind for a lot of Irish people when the history of Irish-Australians is evoked are political rebels. Insurgents against British rule in Ireland were being banished to Australia since 1798, but some of the most famous are those that were transported during and after the famine. You might remember this from our famine episode when we looked into the song The Fields of Athenry, which tells the story of a young man who shipped off to Botany Bay in modern-day Sydney. During the famine itself, there was huge antipathy towards British rule and many people believed that Westminster was actively trying to exterminate the Irish population through starvation. Nationalist activism began to explode at that point and within three years of the outbreak of famine, in 1848, a rebellion was launched known as the Young Irelanders' Rebellion. One of the most famous advocates of that rebellion, John Mitchell, notoriously declared later on that "...the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight," but the English created the famine.
1: These young Irelanders constituted a nationalist group who were inspired by contemporary revolutions happening all across Europe in 1848. It's a pretty famous year for revolutions. Uh, Like so many uh, rebellions in Ireland, though, this one failed, uh, which is no surprise, really, considering how devastated uh, the country was at that point by starvation and emigration.
0: So where does Australia come in? Well, many of the leaders of that rebellion were sent to penal colonies in Australia. That was in many ways a strategic move by the British justice system. If those leaders had been sentenced to death, as was the normal punishment until then, they would have become martyrs. But by sending them across the world, they could effectively be silenced forever.
1: So these Australian transports, these political rebels, uh, you know, they have a really high profile in Ireland. Uh, But, you know, despite that high profile, political prisoners like them were, were actually just a small piece of the puzzle when we think of the total Irish population in Australia at that time. Let's hear from Diane again
2: there were political rebels uh, from the 1798 rebellion who came here as well as some a bit later and there were some quite high profile ones particularly those who came after um, 1848 however they were in a a very small minority compared with the the bulk of the Irish convicts who came out here the other thing with the particularly with the 1798 rebels is our records aren't particularly good that quite a number of Irish came out at that time the most Most recent research suggests that most Irish convicts were convicted of property offences. So they, they weren't political rebels in the strict sense that they were charged with political crimes at the time.
0: The interaction between these Irish settlers and the Indigenous peoples was actually quite complex. Like many settlers, some incoming Irish set up families with Indigenous peoples. And it's possible that some Irish words even entered Aboriginal languages.
2: There, there's evidence, particularly we find that in family histories of Aboriginal families now, who count Irish ancestry in their in their family history, and some of those that appears to be quite amicable. Um, so there's definitely signs that some some Irish and some Indigenous families uh, set up families together. Some language scholars have actually um, picked up or or have theorised that some words um, of Irish. Did sort of enter the Indigenous languages. So there is, there is some evidence at a linguistic level of interaction at a fairly intimate level of pe- people teaching each other bits of language. Uh, it's very hard to pin down though, but, but there is evidence of, um, Indigenous people sort of knowing that there were different words and different, whether they were, had a big sense that there were different languages, um, English and Irish, or that everyone just spoke a different language to themselves is a little bit unclear. There is, however, also a lot of evidence that um, the Irish or Irish people joined with their English neighbours in looking down on the Aboriginal people and being part of the dispossession of of Indigenous peoples throughout Australia. We're not entirely sure exactly how many were on the land when when the um, European settlers arrived in the late 18th century, but pretty much um, the population was decimated by disease first off, then also by uh, deliberate and violent dispossession, um, being hunted off the land that the white settlers wanted for their farms. So by the mid-19th century in the populated areas, there were still um, Aboriginal people living, living around, but they were in most areas to the margins and a system of reserves or areas to... Set up to try and protect them, um, had begun to be set up in most of the of most of the colonies in the areas of Australia that had not yet been extensively settled by um, Europeans. They were still living um, pretty much as they had, um, and some of those colonial sort of dispossession's continued into the early twentieth century in the more remote areas of Australia, in um, Western Australia and the Northern Territory. By the by the mid nineteenth century, um, a lot of their traditional ways of life and traditional ways of um, using the land had been severely disrupted in the eastern states, eastern colonies.
1: So were these political rebels or people who might have shared some of their sentiments aware that they were guilty of the same kind of colonial oppression that they had once fought against? Uh, According to Diane, that doesn't seem very likely. Uh, Remember, just because the Irish had been victims of colonialism and racism doesn't mean that they couldn't harbour racist sentiments themselves. Uh, Certainly, the more modern idea of all oppressed peoples around the world seeing each other as natural allies was not by any means a given at that point. As usual, Diane told us the situation is very complicated.
2: There were some Irish born lawyers, not political rebels, but but lawyers who were involved in trying to, for example, uh, prosecute the murderers of a group of Indigenous people at what's called the Mile Creek Massacre. And there was a great deal deal of outrage about that in Sydney in the um, 1830s. And they did secure some prosecutions um, of those people, some of whom were Irish Catholics who had been um, charged and convicted of murder. But it wasn't a strong sense that because we've been oppressed in Ireland, we will therefore want to do something about about the condition of Indigenous people, although individuals may have seen some correlation between that.
0: The intimate role played by the Irish in Australia's colonial history has, of course, left a deep legacy on the modern nation today. And the continued migration of so many Irish people to Australia today continues to contribute to that ongoing cultural influence.
2: There is a distinct Irish thread within um, Australian identity that is different to other areas, to other former colonies. How how much still remains of that that people can pinpoint on is a little bit difficult to to sort of say. But yes, I think that having 25% of the population who were Irish Catholic essentially um, at the time, the beginning of the 20th century, has meant that the mix is different, particularly to the United States. Um, and it has, it has meant that there is probably a, um, what's often referred to as a larrikin element in Australian culture, which is a sort of a, a little bit of a devil-may-care, um, flouting of authority type of thinking about things. And there, there's, there's an, certainly you can find an element of that um, throughout the throughout the 20th century and perhaps even into the 21st century. Now Irish are seen very much as pretty cool, that a lot of people know doctors and nurses in particular who are Irish. There's very large numbers here. And then there's the backpackers and the seasonal workers But there's professional, Irish professionals in in many professions now, and they're they're very much seen as part of a um, sort of a cosmopolitan global group of travellers and workers. The thinking of Irish culture is very much through the lens of St Patrick's Day and travelling and and, uh, having a good time, I think.
1: That cultural legacy is apparent in Australian literature. For example, in the famous old poem, Said Hanrahan, That poem was written by a Catholic priest of Irish descent, uh, Patrick Joseph Hartigan, whose pen name was John O'Brien. Said Hanrahan was published in 1919, and captures that Irish-sounding idioms of speech, you know, in a farming community in rural Australia, as they were facing that most ancient of foes, drought. Uh, A lot of this is actually written phonetically, uh, to bring out the sounds of an Australian voice that's inflected with Irish sounds. So let's hear some of that poem now.
0: We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, in accents most forlorn. Outside the church ere mass began one frosty Sunday morn, the congregation stood about, quote, collars to the ears, and talked of stock and crops and drought as it had done for years.
1: It's looking crook, said Daniel Croak, bedad it's crook, me lad. For never since the banks went broke has seasons been so bad. It's dry, all right, said young O'Neill, with which, astute remark, he squatted down upon his heel and chewed a piece of bark.
0: And so around the chorus ran. It's keeping dry, no doubt. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, before the year is out. The crops are done. You'll have your work to save one bag of grain. From here, way out to back of work, they're singing out for rain.
1: They're singing out for rain, he said, and all the tanks are dry. The congregation scratched its head and gazed around the sky. There won't be grass, in any case, enough to feed an ass. There's not a blade on Casey's place, as I came down to mass.
0: If rain don't come this month, said Dan, and cleared his throat to speak. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, if rain don't come this week. A heavy silence seemed to steal on all at this remark, and each man squatted on his heel and chewed a piece of bark.
1: We want an inch of rain, we do, O'Neill observed at last, but Croak maintained we wanted two to put the danger past if we don't get three inches man or four to break this drought we'll all be ruined said hanrahan before the year is out
0: in god's good time down came the rain and all the afternoon on iron roof and window pane it drummed a homely tune and through the night it pattered still and lightsome gladsome elves on dripping spout and windowsill kept talking to themselves
1: it pelted pelted all day long as singing at its work till every heart took up her song way out tobacco burke and every creek a banker ran, and dams filled over top. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, if this rain doesn't stop.
0: And stop it did in God's good time, and spring came into fold, a mantle o'er the hills sublime of green and pink and gold. And days went by on dancing feet with harvest hopes immense, and laughing eyes beheld the wheat, nid nodding o'er the fence.
1: And oh, the smiles on every face, says happy lad and lass, through grass knee deep on Casey's place, went riding down to Mass, while round the church enclosed genteel discoursed the men of Mark, and each man squatted on his heel and chewed his piece of bark.
0: There'll be bushfires for sure, my man, they will, without a doubt. We'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan. Before the year is out,
1: uh, that's 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 a really lovely poem, actually, isn't it?
0: A slice of a slice of life yeah. from uh, rural Australia, and you can—it's <laughs> amazing to hear those Irish names and you know, kind of ways of speech as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Also, Irish people are hoping for rain, which is uh, not that unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Naomi, we mustn't forget that a lot of Irish Australians today are descended from immigrants who came much, much more recently um, than, say, those uh, 18th or 19th century settlers. To get an idea of how some people have experienced Irish-Australian identity, I spoke to Loretta and her mother Anna. And Anna has been living in Australia since she moved there with her husband 53 years ago. And they founded a family of eight in the suburbs of Sydney. Uh, Growing up in Australia, Loretta told me, her friends at school used to nickname her Irish. Uh, but it wasn't until she was older that she fully grasped her unique cultural heritage. So let's take a listen to Loretta and Anna.
4: I'm a primary school teacher and I was born in Australia to Irish parents and I now live in France.
6: And this is your mum? Yes, yes. I have been living in Australia 53 years and I'm very happy here with my husband and we're both retired.
1: 53 years and you've, and you've kept your accent I hear?
6: Yes, I haven't lost a bit of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and can I, can I ask where you come from originally?
6: Uh, county Cabin. And
1: um, what brought you to Australia <laughs> back 53 years ago?
6: Oh, who would you think? My husband. He's Irish. But he was out here he was out here for a few years and then he came back for a holiday and we met and that's what brought me to Australia. Okay. So, so
4: as as the story goes, my dad went out to Australia on a ship, six weeks to get to Australia on the ship. He already had two brothers in Australia at the time. So then they were four Irish brothers in Sydney. My dad worked in Sydney for ten years couldn't find an Australian wife and so went home to Ireland to find a wife and found my mum within three months. That's right, isn't it, mum? That's right, yeah. We got married within three months. So we
6: did and we're still together. Not too bad, is it?
1: What were your impressions then landing in Australia uh, 53 years ago?
3: Oh
6: my goodness, it was so hot. It was the 16th of December. I just didn't know how I felt, to be quite honest the show point There's no point in saying I did or I didn't. What I found most was adapting to city life and have lived in the heart of the country all the rest of my life beforehand. I found that more awkward than anything else, to be honest to you. I found the Sydney people the people very friendly, very open. I couldn't believe they could be so, so open-minded. They'd tell you your all their story the minute you'd meet them, while well, the Irish are a lot more, keep back their thoughts and opinions. I really did. I found them very friendly and very, very, very nice. Men welcome with open arms. I thought they were even more friendly than the Irish, to be honest to you. Everybody was asking you, what could they do for you? And we, did you want a job? And they were all really interested in you. There was all kind of immigrants. I think everybody in Australia nearly is an immigrant, to be honest to you. <laughs> so there you go.
1: And, and back um, 53 years ago, of course, it must've been very difficult to stay in touch with home. Yet. It
6: was most difficult. I used to have to arrange with them by letter or something. Or it was telegrams that time, you know, or my sister's wedding was on. I sent a telegram, but I used to have to go up the street here and ring from the phone in the middle of the street, you know, or in the post office. That's the only way, because we had no phone that time. And my parents didn't phone either. They had a friend that had a phone, and um, they, I'd tell them when I was going to phone, you see, and they'd go to their place. <laughs>
1: What what do you remember from your early years of of Irish culture being in your house?
4: Looking back, all the kind of family friends were Irish. All my mum's really close friends, we used to call them auntie and uncle.
6: That's correct. You know, and
4: I think actually my mum's more recent friends in in the last maybe 20 years are Australian and not first or second or third generation immigrants. Yeah. And also where we grew up, the, the suburb we grew up in was very immigrant at the time. It's no longer the case. It's not as immigrant anymore. but. When we grew up, I can remember all the neighbors either being Italian or Serbian. Greek, yeah. Even, you know, my best friends at school were Croatian, Serbian. Yes. And I think the thing we all really had in common was that we were Catholic, basically. Because what I remember sticking out from a very young age is my house had lots of um, crosses and holy water and, you know, we went to church every Sunday, whereas my Australian friends did not have that and almost some of them gawked when they came over to my house and saw all this religious. (laughs) Came to the
6: chapel. I still have them, (laughs) so I have. (laughs)
4: But we used to almost get embarrassed because that's why, you know, we used to become really good friends with the other kind of immigrant kids because uh, we had that kind of similarity with the whole religious thing and and how we celebrated Easter and Christmas, all the kind of religious code you live by, which wasn't as evident with my more Australian friends. Well, you said so many times, this is not an Australian
6: family we live in, it's an Irish family. <laughs>
4: well, it's, it's true. Um, it took me a while to realise that I felt different. I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't put my finger on it for a long time. It was probably only when I was a, a teenager that I actually realised, oh, I have a cultural identity that's very different to a lot of the people around me. I guess because we all had fair skin and blue eyes and it wasn't as obvious as, you know, say my friends who came from yeah. darker European countries, whereas they, they felt that they even felt it physically, whereas I didn't feel that as much. But, yeah, it became obvious when I was older that that I was very different and that's why i felt things slightly different when i was growing up we did things like mum always cooked a massive turkey at christmas that's very european australians don't do that at all like the typical australian go to the goes, beach yes. Yeah. right they go to the beach or they go to the fish markets and they have a seafood christmas as we got older we kind of said to mum why are you doing this why are you slaving over a hot stove making this turkey because, you know, like Australia Christmas could be 40 degrees and it didn't make sense to us that we were having a really hot turkey and mum even did all the Christmas puddings, the Christmas cakes. She spent weeks before Christmas making all those things. So the cooking remained very Irish. We'd always have stews. We'd always have Irish music playing as well. Dad loved listening to the Irish radio, still does today.
6: Then, as we said before, Australia is full of all type of immigrants, anyhow, and it—you
4: didn't feel out of place. I do remember all our cousins doing Irish dancing. We never did that, Mm -hmm. Mum. Why didn't we do that? Well, you—you did ballet instead, didn't you? I also remember having parties at my uncle's house, where I remember them always laying out wooden floor. Uh, all over yeah, the for backyard dance. for yeah. Irish dancing at these parties. Mum would always make us perform whenever we had <laughs> gatherings, whenever there was a, <laughs> whenever there was a barbecue or a confirmation,
0: yeah, we, you know, yes,
4: first confirmation or communion. We would all at the end of the the evening would have to get together and sing and play music for our guests. And I think that's dance. very Irish. I know my sisters played the flute or played the piano, and all of us had to sing. <laughs> and then, and then, as I say, when I went to Ireland um, for the first time when I was twenty-one, same thing happened for me. Every household I went to, where there was anyone musically orientated, they all did a performance for you. And I thought, ah, I get it now. No, <laughs> where from. yeah, where it comes from. Whenever we go back to Ireland, we visit the plot of land my dad grew up on because he actually lived in such a poor building that it pretty much never survived it. I think it fell apart um, not long after they moved off the land. They always know where the exact spot is, though, so we always go and visit that spot. It's just country fields. My dad still has a sister that lives in the area and we have some cousins, so we go there and to his local church where he used to go when I was 21 and I visited Ireland and Europe for the first time. So much of my cultural heritage kind of went, oh my gosh, it makes sense now. Um, And I think one of the funniest moments for me was meeting either Irish people in Europe or people with Irish parents like me who the funniest thing is exchanging the phrases and and expressions that your parents use And that's the funniest thing for me.
1: Can can you Um, think of any in particular?
4: uh, My mum would always say to us, you're a street angel and a house devil. (laughs) Um, My favourite was you never do a hand's turn. So we'd stand there turning (laughs) our hands. I remember being in a pub in France and meeting an Irish person and we were just laughing and laughing, going, oh, my mum says that, oh, my dad says that. And that, oh, that I, I do say all the time, that's the story of it. <laughs> you used to always say Brat of hell. Oh,
6: yes. Yes. <laughs> God be, you swear brat of, brats of hell sometimes.
4: <laughs> Little Divil, you always used to call us a Divil as well.
6: Little Divils, yeah, Little Divils. as well. That, my, that other one came from my mother, House Angels and uh, angels and House devils, but rather you be Three Angels and House devils though, so I would.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Irishness permeates everything. Like, we've got lots of family in, in America as well, and you just... Once you meet these people that you've never met your whole life, you you feel this bond. You have this underlying current of Irishness that bond, like just pulls you together, despite the the where you live. And I I think it's a really strong cultural identity, the Irish identity. I feel it's stronger than the Australian one at times. Um, well, yeah, because it's a lot older and. Um,
6: Funny enough, the Irish are left everywhere, which is very nice. That's true,
4: they? that's true. Um, the Irish are very... left everywhere. Yeah. I think you know, you know, the Irish people spread out so far around the world, but they never forget what it means to be Irish and, and how to help each other and how to really have each other's back. I think, um, yeah, that's true. Very
6: true. I'll just say I, I, I am very proud of my Irish her- heritage but, but I do think Australia one of the best countries in the world.
0: to Loretta and Anna for speaking to us. So Tim, we briefly mentioned Irish workers and backpackers in Australia already, but in the last year Australia has witnessed some terrible tragedies that have considerably disrupted life for everyone who lives there. This year of course we saw the devastating bushfires that destroyed an estimated 18.6 million hectares of land and killed at least 34 people and have led to the deaths of about a billion animals some of which may now have dri- been driven to extinction.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a real, real awful uh, moment uh, for the whole country. Um, one hopeful part of that story um, that was very widely reported in Ireland, as, as those wildfires were still raging uh, over Christmas, uh, was the role of Irish people in helping to fight them. A plumber from Monaghan, Oshin Lachlan, uh, saved a woman from a burning apartment building. Uh, some of the people fighting the fires were also Irish, including firefighter Connor Norse from Tralee in Kerry, who travelled from Ireland to Australia to join the efforts. And there were a series of charity initiatives set up by Irish people, including a group of construction workers in Sydney who organised a convoy of water trucks to come to the aid of farmers who had been stricken by drought. Here's organiser Chris Murphy speaking to the Alan Jones Breakfast Show.
7: Well, now, look, I spoke last week to Chris Murphy. He wrote to tell me how Irish construction businesses in the Sydney region are joining forces to cart water to the drought-affected area around Armidale. This is up in the northern Tablelands. They started with two trucks. When they head off tomorrow, Saturday, they reckon they'll have close to 80 and they'll be taking in the vicinity of 700,000 litres. Chris, good morning to you. Oh, good morning, Alan, how are you doing? I'm well, I listen to that accent, I love it. Chris, just tell us who you are. I mean, you know, you're just an average Joe out there, and what's motivated you to do this? Who are you and what are you doing?
3: Uh, look, we're, we're, the, we're, we're a
5: small family-run business, the same as everybody else. Um, we, um, we, we came here during hard times in Ireland. Uh, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're used to be um, uh, drought-like conditions in Ireland during, um, during the recession. Uh, the, look, the resilience of these farmers out there is, um, is second to none. Uh, the, look, the, the bush is open for business. A dollar spent out in the bushes, better than a $1,000 in the city.
7: Isn't that beautiful? Oh, goodness me. Well, how many Irish, because you've been appealing to the Irish construction businesses, how many of them, Chris, in Sydney?
5: Uh, quite a few. Um, look, there'll be the, the biggest convoy of Irish people tomorrow since, uh, <laughs> since Stuttgart in 88.
7: <laughs> and that we love you all.
0: The Australian government has a very poor record, of course, on environmental policy. Its Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is a long-time advocate for the coal industry. and He once actually brought in a piece of coal into Parliament to kind of taunt opponents about their energy policies. Just like all over the world, Australia has seen a surge in climate activism that has really been underscored by the horrendous toll of those wildfires. And there have been appeals for the government to stop subsidising fossil fuel industries. But at the moment when we record, Australia, like everywhere in the world, has been turned upside down by the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. To try and combat it, Australia has imposed strict quarantine measures and closed its borders to non-citizens. This happened too fast for many Irish people in Australia to react, including some, Tim, who were doing exactly the same as you were those years ago, travelling around Australia. I spoke to one of them, Joe Smith from Cavan. He's a recent graduate and he's a listener of the podcast. And like Tim, he went to Australia for a mix of work and travel. He spoke to me from a hostel in Cairns where he was living with 200 other young people, six to a room. And they were mostly trapped there because their farm work suddenly dried up due to the pandemic and flights home disappeared. Let's hear from Joe.
3: On Sunday, we were told that no, there's no farm work, no backpackers would be allowed. And then they were closing the border to Queensland. Any farmers we've rang have told us, no, some farmers are actually blaming us for bringing bringing coronavirus. Said it's our fault and they just don't seem to want to take any of us and I was stuck in a hostel which obviously isn't great for social distancing or the spread of the virus itself anyway but we kind of have nowhere to go everyone, everyone here is in the same boat we're all looking for work but it doesn't seem doesn't seem like any is going to come from it there is six in my room at the moment there's a mix of all nationalities but we're all in the same boat there's French, Spanish, English, Irish, Welsh usually the backpackers would spend maybe a week, ten days here and they did move on to the farm. But obviously, now everyone's like us.
0: Joe told me that trying to get a flight was a gamble. Some people he knew had spent thousands on a flight only for it to be repeatedly cancelled, leaving them with less money to live on in Australia.
3: Talking to one English girl, she said four flights cancelled. I, I haven't tried to book a flight because they're coming up anywhere between €2,000 Euro to maybe six €7,000, but they're all being cancelled. So we don't really know whether we should just save the last bit of money that we have or book a flight and then you you could be in a worse situation without the money and without a flight because there are no all flights are cancelled. I'm not too bad financially, but some people have very little money left. And if it's a situation where we are going to be secure for two or three months, that might be the easiest way to do it, as cheap as possible. That's what a lot of people are trying to do now. But if we don't really have much of an optional Guy wouldn't mind if if they allowed us to volunteer in the hospitals as part of the regional work, maybe that might be an option that the Irish government could put to the Australian government and provide some sort of financial assistance in lieu, because like every other country, they're not going to need or they're going to be stuck.
0: Since we spoke, he headed to Brisbane, where he's been living in a shed and waiting for the end of the quarantine he has to observe because he moved between Australian states. He's been told that some farm work might come through, after all, we all depend for our food on this kind of migrant labour force. And he did ask that if you hear of anything, let us know and we will pass on any work opportunities to Joe.
1: Some of the people who did manage to get from Australia back to Ireland just in time before the pandemic were many, many health workers. Uh, hundreds of nurses and doctors returned home to Ireland uh, from around the world after the Irish Health Service, the HSC, appealed for healthcare workers to sign up to fight the pandemic. Uh, here's one of them, Dr Paddy Barry, who resigned from his post at a Perth hospital the day after the call was put out.
3: We decided it would be definitely the right thing to do is to go home and help with the help with the fight. And I went into work the next day and asked, would it be okay to resign? And there's usually a four-week cooling-off period, but the staff in Royal Perth Hospital, uh, where I was working, were absolutely brilliant. They completely understood, and they allowed me to cancel the contract on the Friday, which was my last gift. Uh, So I finished up a night shift on the Friday into the Saturday and then flew out Sunday night. And as soon as I'm out of quarantine, I'm back into work, um, up in Tallah Hospital in Dublin.
1: Now, we're coming to the end of the episode, uh, but we cannot leave this without mentioning, Naomi, the most important, the most solemn The most long lasting and serious contribution, (laughs) formative indeed, that Australia has made to Ireland, the world and to me. It's phenomenal and inexplicably addictive daytime soap operas.
0: (laughs) Of course, Australian soaps were a standard part of an Irish childhood for some reason. And I know that Australians think this is kind of hilarious because those shows often aren't even that popular back home.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, uh, And there are loads of them. Uh, Lots of people will know Neighbours, for instance. It's a famous daytime soap. But there's lots of other classic gems that come to mind, like um, Flying Doctors was a particular favourite of mine, Naomi. Uh, Heartbreak (laughs) High, a classic. MacLeod's Daughters. The list goes on. They're all amazing. Um, And in Ireland, however, one, one in particular, held the crown over all others, and that was Home and Away. We belong together
0: Tim, I was one of those weirdos who didn't have a TV in the house, but hmm. um, I mean, it was still the influence of Home and, a- oh, and Away was inescapable. <laughs> I understand that Home and Away was the big one in Ireland, while Neighbours was the kind of big one in the UK. And that was because RTE, the national broadcaster, only had a Home and Away, right?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> now, I love boring my Australian friends with this. So if any of you are listening, yes. I'm harping on about it again, I'm sorry. Uh, But I find this this really interesting. Uh, There was a really interesting cultural divide uh, in Ireland because, uh, as I'm sure you remember, Naomi, some people in Ireland uh, went ahead and bought cable television. And that meant that they could watch UK channels as well as Irish channels. Um, People who had these UK channels, we used to just say that they had, quote-unquote, the channels. And that's, that's how everyone knew them. You know, like, oh, you have the channels, or oh, I wish we had the channels. This is like how I would have interacted with that. Um, Because when we were kids in the 80s and 90s, um, on Irish terrestrial television, there were actually only two TV channels, uh, RT1 and Network 2. And even at that, RT1 was almost entirely, you know, serious, boring adult programming. So there'd be nothing there for kids or teenagers to watch anyway.
0: So if someone was a fan of Neighbours, um, I guess that would be a telltale sign that they had the channels, So they were mm-hmm. kind of posh in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just a telltale sign. It was proof because there was no other way <laughs> to watch Neighbours at the time. You know, there was no internet. Um, I mean, like, like, and it was kind of posh, but like, in strictly relative terms, because like, in reality, it probably only cost about 10 euros a month or something, you know, (laughs) I have no idea. Um, But uh, because Australian soaps were this universal water cooler topic of discussion for kids and teenagers, it created a kind of cleavage between those whose. Um, cultural references revolved completely around Home and Away and then the elite Mm -hmm. golden groups uh, who had the channels um, and (laughs) (laughs) and they you know they would be able to watch Home and Away as well if they wanted to but they didn't they didn't deign to watch anything less than Neighbours (laughs) which they considered far superior
0: (laughs) That is so funny and it's so interesting what you watch in TV as a kid like of course it has a really big effect on how you see the world and remember in Ireland it pretty much rains all the time so um more often than not there wasn't much else to do back in the 80s and 90s
1: yeah right I mean that is uh that is a very important point there and uh not forgetting that people in the republic who lived in, around the border I think they didn't even have to uh buy that cable tv they were just able to move their tv aerial just so and tune their televisions so that they could tune into the UK channels for free um, but down in Galway, anyway, that wasn't an option. We weren't able to tune I, in. Mm. I
0: guess everyone up in the north was watching Neighbours as well. Home and Away usually came acro- uh, on at about six o'clock. Do you know why I know this? Is because it was so embedded in the culture that I remember reading Comprehension in Irish class about a girl r- going home from school and putting on Home and Away to see it mm. at six o'clock and like having a fight with her brother about something or other. It was I like know. a ritual.
1: I know exactly what you're talking about. It was the book in Irish, um, and he, he, he starts being a drug dealer, doesn't he? The main character. Yes, he
0: does. He starts.
1: Yeah. Being, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was one of those really grim, like down with the youth texts that yeah. they used to go. Up
1: those. <laughs> he went to a disco yeah. and, and oh. took an ecstasy tab, I think, and That's everything it. went downhill from there.
0: You remember, the mother found, finds like tin foil under his bed or something yes. like that. Yes. Yes,
1: and I, <laughs> and I mean. She's like, no. The word for syringe in Irish is on the tip of my tongue, but I, yeah. <laughs> because it, was, it was one of them. It was one of those pieces of vocabulary. Um, it yes, was and the I, key
0: vocab, yeah, from this thing.
1: Yeah, the word for syringe. Um, oh, it's all the, coming back
0: to me now. He, like, he comes home and he's like stumbling, but he doesn't smell of drink. And it's like, dun-dun-dun.
1: Oh. <laughs> if he was drunk, that would be one thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Anyway, um, so, yeah, I so way, uh,
0: featured in that, I think It recall. did. Um, it did. And it was after school viewing and i guess perhaps it was like a little slice of another glamorous other side of the world for students who just you know trudged home through wind and rain and they could sit down and watch the beautiful surfers uh, traipse around on golden beaches
1: yeah yeah i mean it was fantastic and uh, in 1980s ireland um you know weirdly it was it was also a bit risqué even though like this is this is programming that was made for kids uh, in Australia um, but it was I remember kind of frowned upon by authorities and parents um, at one point in Ireland because the kids on the show were always like talking back to authority and throwing tantrums and making these dramatic ultimatums and things <laughs> um, but like obviously that risque edge only made it more attractive uh, to to teenagers um, and it also had this really great set of vocabulary that's become a bit legendary in Ireland um, like Strike Me Red was one Um galah is another rack-off. Um, I've been told... <laughs> <laughs> rack-off, rack
6: off, Tim. Rack-off,
1: Naomi. Uh, I've been told <laughs> by Australians that, um, that this is kind of code, code vocabulary that people don't really use. It's like when we say feck in Ireland, you know, like it's kind of like not that offensive. It's like replacement swearing I that you think. could use around kids. I'm not sure if that's totally true. Um, but anyway, whatever the case, it's, it's, uh, it's left a profound impression on the whole population. <laughs>
0: that's probably why everyone kept keep going there
6: <laughs>
1: going. I, honestly honestly i think it's a big it's a big factor
6: listen if you're feeling guilty tell it to someone else okay i'm not really interested i don't believe it. you think i feel guilty oh, i'm out of here no you're not let go of me Just tell me how this happened make me understand chloe because i don't get it oh you don't get it why don't you surprise me for once later maybe if you tried to use your brain you
1: stuck up Yeah, that's right. You're good at starting something you can't finish. Thank you, Australia, for filling our dreary pre-internet afternoons with your golden beaches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And with all these ongoing links between Ireland and Australia, I think it's a subject we are sure to come back to in the future. For now, though, that's all from us remember to share the podcast if you like it and if you're hungry for more Irish Passports exclusive content, why not head over to our Patreon page where you can access our whole archive of bonus content we'll be posting some new episodes there soon
1: all you need to do is to head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport and you can sign up today, so that's a big Aussie slon from me everyone and
0: an Aussie slon from me, ciao
1: bye guys
7: i e